Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 will be in 12 to the end of chapter 5. Let's begin. Verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the, Lord, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and we are witness repentance to Israel and so is the holiness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan 
or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, may you give us courage to not cease teaching that Jesus is the Christ. For it's in his name I ask these things. Amen. Amen. The birth of the church has been marvelous, I think, to watch and to read about over the past five chapters. People being healed. People captive to darkness. The prince of darkness and the sin that so entangles them are being set free. The Lord is adding people to His kingdom left and right. He is is setting the captives free right before our very eyes. But now, as we talked about in the past couple weeks, the heat of circumstances... The furnace, if you will, is being turned up. Opposition is on the rise. Persecution is now firmly here and present. From here to 300 A.D., so over the next 230-ish, 250-ish years, there will be ten systematic persecutions of Christians. Christians will be plundered, their resources taken, their livelihoods taken. They will be tortured, even murdered. At times it will be illegal to be Christians. Christians will be hung on crosses along the road so as to make an example out of them. And here's what's amazing. Here's what's amazing. You, don't have, you, can, you can read in church history as well, but certainly we see, most importantly on these pages, is that in the midst of incredible suffering and great opposition, these Christians had radical courage. Radical courage. They were just beaten. And it says that not only did they continue to live faithfully, proclaiming the name of Jesus, but they even did it joyously. They did it with joy, rejoicing, believing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. The historian Tertullian said this, of course not in these words, but he said, the blood of the Christian is seed. What he meant was, the more you kill them, the more they grow. The more you oppress them, the more the movement moves forward. 
The reality is, is that these persecutions that happened in the first three centuries have not ceased for 2,000 years. Certainly has gone through different seasons and has gone up. Persecution has gone up. It has gone down. And depending on the parts of the world you're in. But the reality is, is that it's not ceased. Theologian and historian D.A. Carson said this, More people have been martyred for following Christ in the last century than in all the first 1900 years of the church's history. We're, we're, right, we're insulated from that, unfortunately. Dent. We don't realize the extent of opposition to the gospel around the world. We don't understand the extent or realize the, just how many of our brothers and sisters are being tortured for the gospel. Christians are being murdered regularly by opposition all the time. I mean, you've seen beheadings that have been broadcasted over the web. We hear stories of Christians being kicked out of their families and disowned because of the gospel. Christians are tortured. I don't know if you realize this, but this is a regular, even sanctioned thing in many of these following countries where Christians are tortured, executed, where it's illegal. Countries like North Korea, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, the Maldives, Saudi Arabia, etc. Places where Christianity is not just despised or looked down upon, but it's something that could cost your life. We even see here in the States a hostility toward Christians growing with each passing day, with each passing week, with each passing news article. We see opposition to the gospel on the rise. Now certainly... Christianity is still kind of floundering and having its place. But true followers of Christ who stand up for the gospel are increasingly finding a hostile environment in which they live and breathe and speak. I don't want to be an alarmist, but listen to me. If we don't prepare ourselves or prepare our children or the generations coming after us for what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of, op- uh, in the midst of opposition, we and the next generations will find themselves being gospel anemic and worthless to the kingdom of God just like many of the evangelicals in this country are today. People who don't know how to engage the culture with the gospel of Christ. And so what happens is we cowered away from standing for what is true and good and beautiful and glorious and even for the general flourishing of mankind. Let me take it up a notch. Not even just will we ourselves or the generations after us be worthless for the cause of God's kingdom, but actually might find ourselves in opposition 
to the kingdom of God. That's what we see going on right now is multiple generations of supposed Christians who have not learned what the gospel really means and how it changes life and how it is paramount to everything else. And so we find ourselves in a culture where Christianity doesn't like, even mean anything anymore. I agree with Tim Keller. He said, don't call me an evangelical. Call me orthodox. Because in our culture today, that term doesn't mean much of anything. If we don't teach ourselves, if we don't prepare the upcoming generations of how to think about these things through the gospel, they will have no courage. Indeed, they will be cowards. You and I will be cowards. Indeed, cowards just like you and I are many times. How often, let me ask you this question, how often do we fear like, how often do we cower away in fear, not saying what needs to be said and not standing for the truth? How often do you do that? How often do I do that? I mean, maybe you say things, right? Maybe we say things in hard situations, but are they the right things? Like, see, it takes courage to say the right things. But oftentimes, I think we say the things that either feel the easiest or serve ourselves. A lot of times when we say hard things, they're just things we want to get off our chest, driven by emotionalism, not by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, certainly wisdom is a factor in knowing what to say and when to say it, but the reality is, is that most times what comes out of our mouths that oftentimes even we would call courageous is words and thoughts driven by emotions more than anything else. Let me push this a little further. Many of us are in relationships right now with friends, family members, co-workers, and we are doing this harm because we do not have the courage to tell them the truth. That's not a friend. That's not, that's not how you love someone. Listen, in these relationships, there is something that they need to hear, and no one is willing to tell them. Again, I don't mean you getting something off your chest. What I mean is saying the loving thing because of the gospel. Maybe in these relationships you're too afraid to face their anger. And listen, I can tell you, it comes. Maybe you're afraid to face their anger. Maybe you're afraid to face their disapproval. Maybe you're even afraid of their retaliation. Listen, I, I want to restate this. When you and I hold back in fear, 
we are not being loving when we do this. We are loving ourselves more than anything else. Listen, I have seen parents, I have seen friends ruin the lives of those around them because they didn't have needed to courage to say what needs to be said and or do what needed to be done. What we need today, what we're going to need increasingly more in the future, is biblical courage, Christ-like courage. How do we face trials, tribulations, difficulties? How do we, how do we walk through these things? How are we going to say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done? How are we going to train our children who are going to be in an even more hostile environment than you and I find ourselves in today? What does it look like? This courage. Where does it come from? Those are the questions that I want to answer from this passage this morning. I think what we see in this passage, among many things, as I was speaking to a pastor friend of mine this past week, I said, it's so hard trying to teach big chunks, particularly in a narrative, because there's so many different things that we can settle on. But I think what we find in this passage, right here in the midst of this persecution, is a short summary, if you will, on what it means to have courage. Where it comes from. What it looks like. Listen, they knew that they could die. Like, beating, they could be beaten, they could die. They were right, listen, they were in front of their accusers. They were facing their accusers like this. The highest court in the land. One word, and off to death, they would march. They watched their Savior die this way, and if they could do it to Jesus, then they could put them to death as well. And how do they respond in the midst of that head-on collision with the culture? They respond with living and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't change their pace. They don't change their, their goal. They said what needed to be said, and they lived the way that they should live. Indeed, they say, listen, they say straight to the face of their accusers, we must obey God, not you. Here's what I want to give us this morning. First, is five characteristics of Christ-like courage. Five characteristics of Christ-like courage. What's it look like? What does courage look like? What does Christ-like courage look like? The first one is this. Christ-like courage is driven by conviction. Christ-like courage is driven by conviction. You might even say it's, it's principled. Christ-like courage is principled. So if we think about training ourselves, training, helping our friends, our children grow, and to have Christ-like courage, they're going to have to know the principles of the Word. 
They're going to have to hold these as convictions. Some of you have heard me say this in the past. The president of the seminary I went to, Dr. Albert Moeller, said this, beliefs are something you hold, but convictions are something that hold you. Something that drives you. That's the, that's the idea here, is that to have Christ-like courage, it's got to come out of conviction, out of principles. There's many verses that we could look at for this idea here, but Acts chapter 5, verse 19 through 20 says, but, do, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Multiple principles in this. Certainly the Lord coming. The Lord is the one speaking. We're given the task to speak of the life-giving Lord who gives life through the gospel. We're going to do that for these people. We believe these things to be true. We believe the one who has said them is true as well. But let me ask you this question. How often, though, does what we say come from our emotions rather than from gospel courage? Like, I got to get my, my emotions got to get up enough before I finally say, at least at that point, what I think needs to be said. The reality is, is probably if it took enough emotional elevation, you're probably not saying what needs to be said. You see, courage is principled. And if we don't stand on principles, then we won't say what needs to be said. What we'll say is what our flesh wants to say. And that's dangerous. That causes harm. That hurts people. And also, if you don't stand on principles then you won't be able to evaluate, evaluate your own thoughts and your own feelings, your own selves, very carefully. So let me ask you this question. How much of what you say, when you do actually say something that is hopefully good and helpful, how often, how much of what you say, especially the hard things, come from a calm, peaceful confidence in the Word of God versus an emotional rise or a boiling over of what's on your chest. Listen, even as they faced death, just listen to the, even as they faced death, they believed the gospel brought life. So how could they not proclaim the gospel? Now we're starting to talk about principled living. Principled driven courage. Because if this is true, that we are facing death, and the gospel gives life, what else is there for us to do? See, principles don't, principles begin to remove options particularly the option to be a coward and to walk away. Again, we need to be careful. We think about wisdom, right? There's times to say certain things and, and times to stand for what we need to and other times that, okay, we need to be maybe a little more quiet or we need to say it a little bit different way. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that running away in fear 
is never right. Running away, going, okay, I'm going to come back at this in a different way, at a different time, that's different. But going away because you're fearful is not Christ-like courage. So it's convictional, it's principled, it's not emotional, even in the face of suffering. Second, Christ-like courage exposes pride. It exposes pride. It exposes pride in you and I. It exposes pride in those who are being faced with Christ-like courage. In this passage, in verse 33, it says this, When they heard this, the Sanhedrin that is, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They wanted to murder the apostles. What's happening? I mean, many things are happening, but at the very least, their pride is being exposed for what it is. Because here's what's happening to the Sanhedrin. Here's what's happening to the religious leaders. Is it showing that the work of God through the Spirit and the subsequently the apostles, this powerful, marvelous healing and and uh, freeing of the captives. This that's taking place. What it's doing is it's showing just how powerless the Sanhedrin was, the religious leaders. Right? Because what are they doing? They're they're week after week going. Okay, well if you do this and you do this, you'll be good. God will take care of you. If you follow us, you'll be all right. Submit to us. Give money to us. You'll be taken care of. Everything will be just fine. And what's coming along? Someone's coming along who's not demanding anything of money and such from these people, and they're getting healed. They're being set free in ways before. And what's set free before? They're being they're being healed in ways they've never been healed before. And what's happening is. Sanhedrin's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're being exposed for the frauds that we are. Now, they wouldn't have called themselves that. But there's the pride. What's being revealed is their true motives. Think about it. If they wanted the people to be healed, why would they throw such a fuss? They're throwing a fuss because they wanted to be the ones given the glory from doing the healing. I know John addressed this a few weeks ago, but the Sadducees were the theological liberals of their day. They were great at keeping the Romans and the Jews happy. They were great. They were great. They were wonderful at politics, social issues, economics. Wonderful at these things. Terrible at theology. Sounds a bit like cultural Christians today. Love to engage these things. Terrible at theology. So how do they end up engaging them, right? Wrongly. In a damaging sense. But look at the apostles. What did they engage? How did they engage? They engaged theology. They engaged the truth of the gospel. They proclaimed that and then its implications for the rest of life. 
You'll see this work out as the church grows, as Acts moves on. They're, they're proclaiming the gospel. And then now, hey, all of a sudden the gospel is bringing a shining light on how we treat the poor and how we treat the oppressed and, and how we work out these things. But they're beginning with, this is the gospel. The gospel changes. They engage theologically, not just politically or economically or socially. You see, this group of Pharisees, generally speaking, was filled with jealous anger because their beliefs are being challenged and they are losing power. It is being ripped away. I want to give us a stern warning here. We have to be careful because you and I float in and out of this prideful group all the time. This is not just those people out there. This is many of us, I would say all of us in this room as well. Let me give you an example. Any given Sunday, as you hear your pastor's protest, meaning try to disrupt the status quo of your life, you could just as easily be the prideful Sadducees upset that you're being challenged or that you are losing power. We have this propensity to move in and out, in and out of this prideful group of people that when someone has the courage to come along, sometimes it exposes what's deep down inside. You see, they were jealous. They believed that they deserved the position of influence and power. But let's think about it for a second. What was it that enraged them? Like what was, on the, on the surface, what was happening? What was, what was the fruit of the apostles' work, right? It was, they were healing people. They were loving people. They were sharing the gospel. People were being set free. Think about this. The, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they, they didn't necessarily want more people to be sick or demon-possessed. But they didn't want their lack of power to grow more evident. And I want to point out to you that anytime you and I stand up for the poor in spirit, the oppressed, the helpless, persecution, the persecuted, persecution and opposition, We'll be just around the corner. I mean, that seems crazy though, right? Seems crazy. Why, why would you go after people who are trying to help people? Why would you try to hurt people that are trying to help people? That doesn't make any sense, right? But then, then, then think about the substitutionary reality of that, where you trying to help someone who's oppressed now become oppressed. For what? What's that sound like? It sounds like the good news of the gospel. Where Jesus comes and takes on our oppression to set us free. That we would live in freedom. Let me comment quickly on pride that's most close to home. Right? As, as courage, Christ-like courage comes along and what, maybe it's in a DNA group, it's in house gathering, maybe it's, it's in the Word, uh, maybe it's from preaching, maybe it's from a podcast or a blog, who, who knows, the truth comes along, 
someone's delivering it in Christ-like courage. It's so easy for us to say, these are just common phrases that I have heard many times. One, you don't know me. Well, you don't know me. Apparently, you don't know me. And probably no one else does too. I mean, that's what I want to say. Or I'm the victim. Or our inner lawyers come out, right? I just, I want to justify this away. I want to, instead of humbly going, you know what, let me think about that. You're probably just hitting the tip of the iceberg because probably as I think about what you're saying, it's probably more true than I realize or even you see or realize. That would be humility. Again, we're excellent at politics, terrible at theology. That's all this person is, is a politician. You don't know me. Let me try and manipulate the situation around. Theology would say, hey, I'm probably worse than what you even see. You see, courage exposes pride. Why? Because those two things don't go together. Christ-like courage can't come from a prideful person. And when it rubs up against a prideful person, it exposes the pridefulness. We should move on. Pride. Christ-like courage looks, it exposes pride. Next, Christ-like courage sometimes looks like disobedience. And in some realms is disobedience. I don't think I need to caveat this much, but let me at least explain this a little bit. Christ-like courage will sometimes call for what looks like disobedience. Verse 27 through 28. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. You here, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right, so they're directly going against the Sanhedrin at this point. I mean, explicitly, completely in opposition to what their authority is telling them to do. Let me just, again, work through this a little bit with you. God is the one who ultimately, we know, establishes authorities. And God has called us to obey them. He has established authority like the family the church, the state. Right? So the state includes laws and police and such. God has called us to obey them. We must respect the authorities in these places. Even the authorities that we despise. But we follow with respect until it contradicts the Scriptures. Until it tells us to do something or forbids us to do something that the Scriptures have told us not to do or that we must do. Now, now again, I do want to put this caveat in here. This doesn't mean that we get to rebel when there is a law that we simply don't like or something that makes us uncomfortable. We don't get to just, as Christians, go, well, I don't, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable.
we're talking about wisely acting in occasions when the state forbids what God requires or sanctions that which God forbids. Now, I want to press in on the wisdom side of this because we've got to be very careful. The obligation to obey God rather than human laws that contradict God's will, as one person said, does not specify which means of disobedience are morally permissible or prudentially advisable. Let me explain that. <clears throat> With giving you an example. We'll give a very broad one here. We're to proclaim the gospel, right? We're to share the gospel with people. We're commanded to do that. If it becomes illegal to speak the gospel in the states, which don't think this is out of the realm of possibilities, if it becomes illegal to speak the gospel in the states, we're still called to do that. But we have to be careful that the way we do that isn't fit, like doesn't have to look a certain way. For example, if it becomes illegal in the States, that doesn't mean that you and I are morally obligated to grab a bullhorn and stand on the street corner and be martyred for it. Does that make sense? So what it might look like is sharing it in secret with your neighbor. Now, you might still face persecution in, in uh, jail time, fines, whatever, but it doesn't, it doesn't obligate the way we do it. It has to look a certain way. We just have to be careful about that, particularly that, we don't, that we're not judging other people in the way that that is supposed to look. So the obligation to obey God rather than human laws that contradict Him doesn't specify which means of disobedience we are to do or is wise for us to do. Might God call someone in that context to use a bullhorn? Maybe. I mean, that's kind of what's going on here, right? They're being told not to. I don't think that they were moral, other than the, if you remove, if you remove the fact that the angel said, go do this, okay? If you remove that part of the narrative, they say, don't speak in his name. That doesn't mean that they're required to go to the temple the next day and speak his name. They could have done it from house to house, from neighbor to neighbor, from coworker to coworker. Of course, here the angel says, "Go do this," and they go. Now, the last three examples I've given you, at least the last two, have been largely kind of negative examples of Christ-like courage. But I want us to be careful that. As we think about living publicly for Christ, we cannot miss this next characteristic of Christ-like courage. This next one was promised to Abraham. It was promised to him that through him would come blessing to the whole world. At this point in the narrative, for many people, the gospel, the Christian faith is repulsive and disgusting. Today, the same is true. But to many, and this is where you and I really got to believe, to many the gospel 
is a drop of fresh water to a dry and weary soul. Do we really believe that? You see, the next characteristic of Christ-like courage is that it cares for the poor in spirit. Like I would say, even as a fundamental characteristic of courage, Christ-like courage is that it's going to be about caring for the poor in spirit. It's got to, I guess what I'm saying is it has to include that element to some extent. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Something is happening here in Acts that Jesus talked about in Matthew 5. And that is the humble are being saved. The poor in spirit are being saved. Many were being drawn to Christ by the power and the love of the church. The courage of the church. The humble are being healed. The poor in spirit desperately seek physical restoration. And they're receiving it. We know that even today, that prayers for the healing of those who love Christ are always answered with yes. Either yes soon or yes later. Healing comes for the poor in spirit. The humble are being delivered. Those with unclean spirits receive spiritual freedom we saw in the beginning in verses 12 and following. So let me ask you this question. Does your courage lead you to care for the poor in spirit? Let me ask you this. Are, are you, do you recognize your poor in spirit as well? Or do you live out of prideful confidence? Right? You see how these things don't work together? You're not going to be Christ-like courageous. Like You're not going to have this if you are not also poor in spirit. But then if you are poor in spirit, you'll have Christ-like courageous and you will care for the poor in spirit. Listen, we can't come to Christ rich in spirit. That is arrogance. Do we care for the poor in spirit? The beautiful thing about the poor in spirit is that this is not tied to a particular culture, a particular socioeconomic class. It doesn't, it's not tied. This is mankind. You know, as we move forward in our house gatherings, I am so excited about the wonderful opportunities we're going to have to care for the poor in spirit. You see, listen, Christ-like courage enriches the hearts and lives of the poor in spirit. I want to give you an example. At our, when we did trick-or-treat uh, at our uh, house gathering this past week, I heard many people, not just like, oh, thank you for the hot dog or thank you for the candy, but I heard multiple times, even from a distance, there was a sense of thank you for caring for our community. Like, like we're just doing something really simple, right? We're handing out some candy, some hot dogs. Uh, our group had some 
prayer cards, had multiple people fill those out. And people saying, like, there's a sense of, thank you for caring for our community. There was a sense of, of we recognize that our community is, is poor in spirit. There was a, I mean, they wouldn't use those words, but there was a sense of which we need this. That's amazing. The last characteristic I want to speak of this morning is that Christ-like courage is joyful. It's joyful. (coughs) Verse 41. It says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They had just been beaten, just been tortured and beaten, and they leave rejoicing. Listen, they were not rejoicing because they were experiencing pain. Understand, they were probably emotionally hurt. They were in physical pain. They were probably angry at the rejection of the message. I mean, clearly our emotional side of our being is complex. But what we see here is that following Jesus is joy. There was, they were rejoicing, being counted. I mean, think about the humility. We're rejoicing because we've been counted worthy to suffer. The apostles left the Sanhedrin building in which they had just been interrogated and beaten, and they left with joy, and they continued to preach the good news of Jesus. It was joyful. I think this, at least hopefully, starts to build a picture for you of what Christ-like courage looks like. <clears throat> Second, I want to talk about what is, where does Christ-like courage come from? How do, we, how do we get it? Where does it birth from? Christ-like courage is birthed from hope. It's birthed from hope. I, I wanted to flesh this out because it's, I want to take this kind of abstract concept and kind of put some feet to it. Christ-like courage is birthed from hope. <clears throat> Most often, here's how we try to get courage how we try to how do we try to bring courage to well up inside of us this is how we most often do this is how our culture does it <clears throat> we try to banish fear by embracing delusion we try to banish fear by embracing delusion i can do it it'll all be okay i'm strong or how do we do it oh you'll be okay You'll be strong. You got this. It really isn't as bad as it looks. Someone will catch me if I fall. <clears throat> right, you can even see how like, like gospel truths can be manipulated to feed this wrong idea of courage. Where you, oh, you know, God's sovereign over this. Right? But look at the apostles. 
It's not as bad as it looks. But Peter, verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Like, what do they do? They don't, they don't turn from, they don't try to banish the reality. Instead, they face the reality. Like, they're hearing their accusers tell them not to do this, and they say to them to their face, You killed Jesus. This is the reality that we face right now is the implication. We face the same potential outcome. They're not minimizing the reality, minimizing the danger so that they can have the courage to say what needs to be said. Instead, they remember that you killed our Savior. And somehow from that, courage comes. Notice the phrase leader and Savior there. That's a, I think that if, if you read particularly the New Testament, like you go, leader and Savior. That's weird. Lord and Savior, yes. Leader and Savior, what are they talking about? The, the, the word there is archagos, which is also used in a later passage I, I want to show you. The, it literally means, like in this context particularly, the idea of captain. The idea of prince. Let's stick with the word captain for a second. Jesus is our captain. So the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as our captain, as our leader, our prince. The idea here is our hero. God exalted him as our hero. In this culture, the idea of hero would have been huge. They would have understood this very clearly. And God exalted him at his right hand, to his right hand, as our hero, as our captain. The picture here, someone said this week, is that it's like Jesus is in this cosmic battle against the prince of darkness, and he won as our hero. Listen, we misunderstand courage in many ways today because in our day, courage comes from someone who gains some sort of strength or power, right? Superheroes, right? Marvel and DC, right? They, they, they get some kind of special power or a lot of money given them so they can buy special powers or whatever. And then they're able to rescue people. Well, one of the dangers for us is that then when, when power is acquired, our Tendency then is to use that power for abusive means, right? To abuse that power. And so we try, what we try to do in order to gain, in order to gain courage to do what we need to do, we try to muster up power and influence and we fail over and over again. But how do we know that Jesus came? If Jesus here is said to be our hero, so it's said to be the, the one who conquered, our captain. How did he come? He came in weakness, Philippians 2 tells us. 
He didn't come and acquire power and strength. Keller said this, Jesus' strength lies in the fact that he gave up his power. He laid his glory by. He gave up all the strength. He came down and became a mortal. And he went to the cross. His heroism looks like substitution. Jesus came not to crack skulls, but to have thorns put in his. That's the kind of heroism we need. You see, the kind of courage and heroism is available, this kind, not simply to the strong, the privileged, or the powerful. It's available to the weak. Indeed, for God's people, it's only available to the weak. The apostles are showing us this very thing. I want to give you the first part of a statement and then the second part in just a few moments. The first part is this. True courage embraces reality. True courage, Christ-like courage embraces reality. So again, what was reality for the apostles? Look in verse 40 and 41. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Look, they didn't ignore the suffering. They didn't pretend that the suffering wasn't there. They didn't banish the reality in order to embrace delusion. But they actually embraced as much as they could the extent of the reality. So let me ask you this question. Is that how Jesus went to the cross? Did he banish fear? Did he embrace a delusion? Like, Did he say, alright, come on, cup of wrath, give it to me? What's he say? No. With drops of sweat like blood, he says, let it pass from me. He doesn't banish the reality. He embraces the reality. Jesus was afraid. Do you understand that? In the garden, he was afraid. He was fearful. But he doesn't banish the reality in order to get rid of his fear. What is the reality for you and I? For Christians around this world, what is the reality though for you and I? What might might you have to face if you are courageous? The bitterness of a spouse? The running away of a child? The rejection of a co-worker? The loss of a job? Like right, there's, even right now, there's a part of me that like wants to say, but it's not that bad. You'll be okay. Or there, I'm sure there's a part of us going like right now, well, our culture isn't quite there yet. Or, you know, they'll forgive me. They won't be that bad. No, it might be. Matter of fact, it might be worse 
than what you are even imagining right now. But what happened here? Verse 40 says they left rejoicing. They left rejoicing. So here's the question. What was it that they were seeing? If they left rejoicing, what is it that was bringing them to joy? How could they have just been beaten? And for them to be rejoicing. You see, true courage embraces reality by fixing its eyes on Jesus. And I want to talk specifically what I mean by that, because that's a little cliche. What do I mean by that? Hebrews 12, 1 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 2 again, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the archegos of our faith, who for the joy, listen, what is he saying here in Hebrews 12? He's saying he is the hero of our faith. He is the prince of our faith. He is the, the, the leader of our faith, the one who perfects our faith. He is the courageous one. And if God defeated Satan himself through our captain, then why on earth would we fear anything else? That's what the apostles are saying at that moment to the Sanhedrin. They're saying, listen, if Jesus is our captain and he defeated the prince of darkness, why would we ever fear you? Their joy Their courage came from fixing their eyes, not just on some lofty thoughts of Jesus, but by fixing their eyes on the fact that Jesus was their hero, their courageous one, their rescuer, their perfecter, their prince. I also want you to, in Hebrews 12 with me for a second, look at Christ. What what is the joy that was set before Christ? What was the joy set before Christ in this passage? Right, so the idea of the joy set before Him is, is a joy to be had, like a joy to acquire, a joy set before Him that He's looking at as He works towards, as he lives out faithfulness, he sees this joy. What is he looking at? What was it that brought him joy in this moment? What was it that his eyes were set on? It couldn't be the joy of obedience to the Father. You say, well, he's just trying to obey the Father, so he was getting joy from trying to obey his Father. No, he already had that. He had that joy. He tells us this. 
I think Keller's right. He says this, the only possible joy that he, Jesus, could have been looking at that he didn't already have was the joy of having us. The joy of having his bride. He was filled with joy at the thought of redeeming us, saving us, loving us. That task was not yet done. Jesus wasn't delusional, he wasn't banishing reality, he was afraid. But his joy, the joy of acquiring his bride, gave him the courage to do what needed to be done. So let me ask you this question. How are we supposed to be courageous? How do we get Christ-like courage? We fix our eyes on Jesus, our captain, We fix our eyes on Jesus, our courageous hero. We need to look at Him being brave for us. That made the apostles brave. And that will make you and I brave. Let's pray. Father, we have such wandering eyes that want to embrace so many, even beautiful things. But we are called to fix our eyes upon you. To fix our eyes particularly upon the work of your son Jesus as he lives and dies and reflects you, Father, as He is the image of the invisible God. You've given us something to gaze upon, but not just lofty thoughts of a Creator, or even the Creator's wonderful Son or the Spirit, but you've given us the work of your Son Jesus for us to look to and see just who He is, and just what He's done, and just what He cares for and what He loves and what He's willing to die for. Father, this doesn't put us at the center of the universe. It puts You. Because why would You do this for us? Because Your glory is the only glory worth worshiping. And so You rescue a people through Your Son who fixes His eyes on the joy set before Him, the joy of acquiring His bride. Father, may we, may we believe because of Your work that we sit in that position. That for the joy set before Him, He looks and sees my face. He looks and sees all the faces of his bride. Father, may that give us courage. It's in Jesus' name, amen.